0: Hello. Welcome to the Myths and History of Greece and Rome. Chapter 71, Travels and Walls. Optimus Trajan is dead. Once you've been ruled by a man called the best, things can only go downhill. It's just a question of how much. Once it was realised that Trajan was ill, the people began to wonder who the next guy would be, and if he would be so much worse than Trajan that the empire would suffer badly. There was only one real candidate for the job, and this time the Romans were lucky. Trajan's successor is also one of the emperors that would be in most people's list of the best Roman emperors ever. Trajan, though, hadn't named his successor when he became ill, and it may be that he still hadn't when he died. His wife, Pompeia, wanted to make sure that her dead husband got the decision right, and so she covered up the news of his death for a couple of days, until she had sent a letter, supposedly signed by Trajan, announcing his decision, and the new emperor was crowned without any revolt. The legions declared him emperor, and the senate reluctantly agreed. Publius Aelius Hadrianus was born in 76 AD, either in Italy or Spain, but he definitely grew up in Spain. His father died when he was young, and he was put in the care of two men. One of these was Asilius Atianus, and the other was Trajan. Hadrian was also a cousin of Trajan. As we've heard, legend has it that it was Hadrian who brought the exciting news to Trajan that Nerva had adopted him, running the last few miles so he could tell Trajan before anyone else did. Hadrian married Trajan's great-niece Sabrina, further tightening the ties between the two men. Hadrian served under Trajan, proving himself to be a capable no-nonsense soldier and good leader of men. He was consul in 108 and later appointed governor of Syria, In 118, the year after Trajan's death, he was due to be consul again. Instead, by the time 108 came around, he was already emperor. When he became emperor, though, he proved that he may be as great, but he wasn't the same as Trajan. He wasn't as popular with the Senate, as soon after he became emperor, four senators and former consuls were put to death after a plot against the new emperor was revealed. Hadrian always denied any responsibility for these executions and blamed Attianus, but the Senate didn't believe him and they never completely trusted him after that. They couldn't quite rid themselves of the thought that they were being ruled by another Domitian. It was in his policies and method of government that Hadrian proved himself to be very different from Trajan. His greatest policy shift from the previous regime was imperial border control, Trajan had spent his time conquering new lands and creating new provinces. He'd gazed out over the Red Sea and lamented that he hadn't made it to India. Hadrian had no such ambitions. He wanted a secure, easily defendable and prosperous empire, not a constantly expanding one. The risk-averse Hadrian decided that most of the new provinces couldn't be defended, and he was probably right. Many of the new territories were already in revolt. Hadrian decided that Dacia should be kept, it could be defended, and, as we already know, was handily full of gold. All of the new provinces in the east though, with the exception of the new province of Arabia, he decided were liabilities, not assets, and should be abandoned. He ordered the legions to begin withdrawing, returning to the previous imperial policy of client kings in these regions. Hadrian's new policy of withdrawal did not go down very well at all. Not only did it undo the work of Rome's most popular emperor, it was profoundly un-Roman. The Roman ethos was one of imperium sine fine, or power without end. Withdrawing and improving the defences at the borders was in direct violation of this. It also deprived the senators of new provinces and thus new governor opportunities. It deprived the army of glory and the traders of new profitable trading routes. Hadrian was clever enough not to announce that he was abandoning the new territories. He simply withdrew the legions. The senate and the army were not happy, but Hadrian was a clever and persuasive man, and he managed to do what he wanted without anyone revolting against his rule. Hadrian's vision was obviously a good one, as it passed the test of time. The empire would stay the same size and have pretty much the same borders for the next 150 years. The new emperor was a restless traveller and having shored up the defences, he wanted to see his empire. He visited most of the imperial provinces in his first trip around the empire from 121 to 125. This allowed him to discover, personally, the issues which his citizens had to deal with. In order to press home his imperial, man-of-the-people image, he had coins issued in the provinces showing him wearing local dress. Part of Hadrian's new border policy was the physical strengthening of the defences on the extremes of his empire. He visited and toughened up the Rhine and Danube legions, seeing two great rivers as an ideal physical barrier. As Domitian had been before him, he was concerned about the 30-mile gap between the two rivers where there was no natural barrier. He heartily approved of Domitian's solution, a nice wall, and improved the last Flavian's defensive fortifications. In 122, Hadrian travelled to the far away island of Britannia. The northern part of the island had never been incorporated into the empire, and the tribes from present-day Scotland were a constant menace. Hadrian, true to form, wanted a permanent solution to the instability. So, what did he do? He had the legions build a 70-mile brick wall to keep the marauders out. Hadrian was too tactically astute just to build a defensive wall. So he had it built in the middle of the territory of the Brigantes, a strong tribe in northern England. This stopped any resistance from them while keeping the Scots where Hadrian wanted them. This long, strong wall is one of the most important Roman monuments in the world. Originally the wall had guard towers every mile and was whitewashed so that it stood out against the landscape, even in the dark. The wall must have been a formidable and somewhat frightening sight for the barbarians and it did its job well. Hadrian's Wall is famous throughout the world, but it was far from being the only defensive wall in the Empire. As well as the Rhine-Danube defences, there were walls built in North Africa and Raisha. Where there was no physical invasion deterrent, the borders were clearly marked, and it was made perfectly apparent to any potential invader where the line was which they shouldn't cross. It shouldn't be thought, though, that Hadrian's policy was to keep everyone out. He knew as well as anyone that trade with the peoples living outside the Empire was important. Hadrian's wall in Britain, as well as many of the other defences, was there as much to act as a customs point as a defence. Trade flourished throughout Hadrian's reign, partly due to the fact that his defences and manageable territorial changes kept the peace. After visiting Africa, and then Egypt, Hadrian decided it was finally time to deal with the Parthians. But, as we know, Hadrian wasn't like Trajan, and he wanted to find a long-term peace So he did something that not many Roman emperors had done. He personally met with the Parthian king, and together they agreed the Euphrates River would be the permanent border between their empires. Both sides went home in peace, and the peace lasted many years. Hadrian was a lover of art and literature, especially everything Greek. He was given the nickname the Greekling, or Little Greek, because of this. After making peace with the Parthians, Hadrian travelled to his favourite place, Athens, building great temples, aqueducts and roads as he went. The restless emperor tripped round Asia, building more aqueducts, markets, bridges and houses for the people. He then travelled back to Rome. On returning to Rome, the emperor moved into his new villa complex a few miles away that he had had designed and left construction instructions for before going on his travels. The villa was not the only architectural project he had kicked off before leaving. Hadrian was a man of talent certainly one of the cleverest that Rome had ever produced. He became a fine public speaker. He was a student of philosophy and other subjects who could hold his own with the great learners in their fields. He wrote an autobiography, the story of his own life, and poetry, and he was a superb architect. It was in this last area that he left his greatest mark, with several of the empire's most extraordinary and wonderful buildings being created by Hadrian's talented brain on april the twenty first one twenty one Hadrian had begun construction of a temple unique in design and larger than any other ever built by the Romans. Its length of more than a hundred meters made it the only Roman addition to the short list of temples built by the Greeks, which were at least that long. Even more extraordinary was the interior. There were two inner chambers back to back with a large vault at the end in which were placed the statues of the goddesses Venus and Roma. Hadrian asked that great man and friend of Trajan, Apollodorus of Damascus, what he thought of this wonderful new temple. The great architect replied, the doors are too small and the statue of Venus is too big. If Venus wanted to go for a walk, she wouldn't be able to get out. Hadrian was furious and had Trajan's friend banished from Rome. Talented he was, but a good taker of constructive criticism, he wasn't. One of the Emperor of Construction's most magnificent achievements was the rebuilding of the Parthenon, originally erected by Marcus Agrippa. Hadrian's architect created a magical circular building. The recent discovery of concrete allowed the construction of something bolder and grander than any similar building built previously. It's thought that the Pantheon was the first major monument to be composed as an interior, it is vast, circular, and topped off by a floating dome entirely unsupported internally. In the top of the dome is a skylight which allows sunlight to fill the space. The walls are broken by rectangular and semicircular recesses, adding to the majesty of the interior. The Pantheon is still there in Rome today. As the city grew, it became incorporated into the network of streets and dwellings, but it's still a magnificent sight. It was converted into a Christian church in 609 AD, which probably saved it from destruction. It's still a church today. It's well worth a visit, and I would urge anyone who visits Rome to take the time to see it. It's only a short walk from the Colosseum, but needs to be sought out and found. Hadrian had arrived back in Italy in 125. He'd been away from Rome for nearly four years. He didn't really like Rome, but he knew that he had to spend some time there or people would wonder what was going on. The provincial people loved him as they actually saw him, but the Italian people were not so sure. They thought Hadrian was a Spaniard who loved all things Greek and liked things that Romans were supposed to dislike, like hunting. Also, Hadrian had a full beard which was not the fashion in Rome at the time. Trajan hadn't had a beard. As it happened, Hadrian's penchant for facial hair would be a trend-changer. For the next hundred years, beards were all the rage in Raymond High Society. Hadrian was a workaholic and had a tendency to be irascible. The fact that he was not universally popular must have irked him, so he did his best to improve his standing with the common people of Italy. He cancelled all outstanding debts and burned the evidence. Then he went further still and gave the people what they really wanted. Games, games and more games. Despite these actions designed to gain the hearts and minds of the Roman people, Hadrian never reached the popularity of his predecessor. This is somewhat unfair on Hadrian. He did what needed to be done. His far-sighted foreign policy must have been a bit dull compared with the excitement of the conquests of Trajan, but it was what was needed. Rome was remarkably peaceful during Hadrian's reign, and thus, given the still plentiful Dacian gold, prosperous and comfortable, Hadrian deserved the popularity he craved but he never really attained it. But in some ways it didn't matter. Rome wasn't the centre of the empire anymore. Hadrian was the centre of the empire. It wasn't too much of a problem for the emperor that the people of the city were not too keen on him. The empire revolved around the emperor, not a city stuck halfway down the Italian peninsula. Hadrian's personality was ideally suited to ruling a vast emperor. He had an innate wish for things to be neat and tidy and for everyone to know exactly where they stood. He asked a famous jurist of the time, a man called Salvius Julianus, to codify the existing laws. The result was a new law book containing a permanent set of laws. The laws, known as the Addictum Perpetuum, could only subsequently be altered by the Emperor or the Senate. In 128, Hadrian decided to take another long trip and went back to North Africa. Before he arrived there, there had been many years of drought and the grain supply was short. People thought they were going to starve. When Hadrian turned up, it began to rain. Clearly this provincial emperor was something of a godsend, and coins were issued praising the wonderful Hadrian, the Rainmaker. Hadrian arrived in the troubled province of Judea later in his second round-the-empire trip. The earlier Jewish revolts had left the province devastated, and Hadrian wanted to bring it back to life. Unfortunately, he decided to do this by trying to romanize the province, which the inhabitants took as an attempt to destroy the Jewish religion and traditions. He renamed Jerusalem, the holy city of the Jews, Aelia Capitolina. Aelia was part of his own name. Then he built a Roman temple on the site of the Jewish temple. Unsurprisingly, the Jewish people were not happy, and this unhappiness was to spill over into a full revolt a few years later. Hadrian's personal life was not as successful as his professional one. His wife died in 136, but he had been estranged from her for some time and they had not had any children. Hadrian was not particularly interested in women, preferring the company of men. His favourite companion was a young man by the name of Antinous. There were mutterings in the court that there was something not quite suitable about the friendship. During his second trip around his realm, Hadrian went to Egypt to see all of the ancient sites taking Antinous with him. During a boat trip down the Nile, Antinous drowned. It's not known whether there is any foul play. Hadrian was devastated and had many statues built to his young friend and declared that he was a god. The senate was not at all pleased. The last emperor who declared someone a god without their permission was Domitian and we all know what happened to him. In 132, Hadrian was again in Athens and he learned that a very violent revolt had just broken out in Judea. This had been planned since Hadrian had renamed Jerusalem. The rebels were very clever. The local people made weapons for the Romans, but knowing the Romans would only accept them if they were perfect, they made deliberately bad quality goods. The Romans would say that they were not good enough and have them thrown away. During the night, the Jews would sneak to the rubbish pile and pick up the discarded weapons and make them fully functional. When the revolt happened, the Romans couldn't believe how many weapons the Jews had. The leader of the revolt was called Simon Bar Kokhba. He announced he would restore the Kingdom of Israel. There were two legions in Judea under the command of Tinius Rufus, but these legions were badly beaten by Jewish attacks, and then a new legion sent in from Egypt was completely destroyed. Simon then declared the Kingdom of Israel was now not part of the Roman Empire and began issuing independent coinage. Hadrian was livid. He sent Sextus Julius Severus, his best general, to lead an army to crush the revolt. It took 12 legions, thousands of men and a long time to break the revolt, and over 600,000 Jews were killed, but eventually the Romans recaptured the province. The Jewish people scattered around the empire, and the province of Judea hardly had any people left in it. Hadrian banned the Jews from entering Jerusalem, still called Aelia Capitolina, He then had the sacred scrolls burned, banned the Jewish religion and renamed the province Syria-Palestinia. Hadrian actually travelled to the region to help Sextus to complete the job. The Jewish people hated Hadrian more than any other Roman person and they still loathe him today. Whenever his name is mentioned in Jewish sources, it is with an added, Hadrian, may his bones be crushed. Still restless and energetic, Hadrian went on another complete trip around the empire, building more buildings, deciding legal disputes and generally being a great guy, and then came back to Italy for the last time. Once he was back at his villa, his health wasn't too good, and he started to think about who should rule once he was gone. Trajan had given the succession no thought at all during his lifetime, but Hadrian became obsessed with it. Hadrian, being Hadrian, left nothing to chance. Unfortunately, the person who he'd marked out as the future ideal emperor of the Romans was a 15-year-old boy. If Hadrian wanted to make this happen, then he was going to have to have a very good plan. Fortunately, Hadrian had a very good plan. Next time, we'll find out what that very good plan was. As I mentioned in my millionth download announcement, in two weeks' time I'll be on a family holiday. The myths and history of Greece and Rome we'll be having a couple of weeks off, so Hadrian's Great Pan will be unveiled in four weeks' time. So, have a great month or so, and I'll speak to you then.